Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So I am not going to preach the sermon <laughs> that I wrote this morning. I think it would have been okay. But again, as I mentioned, waking up these readings that we don't choose, right? We, we, these readings that we read every single Sunday here at All Souls come from something called uh, the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a three-year cycle of readings that we receive, I don't stand up here and decide what it is we preach and where we preach from. It's we take the stories of God as they come. And I think it's a real gift. And I have yet to be surprised on a Sunday like today when the readings, just by virtue of the Holy Spirit, who is the master weaver, gives us readings on a day like today. As I mentioned, I got up this morning Read, wrote the sermon, went through the liturgy, all those things, and then, of course, open up to the news story of what happened in Buffalo. And again, not knowing, you know, part of my story is I grew up as a pastor's kid uh, in a mainline tradition. Every single Sunday, we'd pull up to the church parking lot, and uh, mom and dad, who did their best, loved us fiercely, would turn around and say, okay, now put on your church face. It's time to go in. Every Sunday, y'all, that was the liturgy, every Sunday. And so what does that communicate? Church is not a place where you can be honest, you can be vulnerable, you can be you. Especially as a preacher's kid, there's this expectation of a different way of being present, even in the gathering, which is why I tell our staff all the time, no one gets to get, a, no one gets to get away with what your kids get to get, get away with. That's why when Laurel runs up here mid-service, it's like, all right, head back down. But every single Sunday we were told, and I have just rebelled against that. Because I don't think that's how Jesus shows up in earth. The incarnation is so backwards to how we would, if we were writing the story, imagine it. A rags to riches story stumbles upon some new form of technology, some wealth of money, some form of privilege that he then uses and wields to neck down his enemies, to restore order. It's almost the image that we get in Revelation 21 of a king sitting on a throne. Behold, I've made all things new. And if we're not careful, then our understanding of how Jesus gets on that throne and gets to that place of saying, all things are being made new. I am the Alpha and the Omega. If we're not careful, we will blow by how he gets to that throne. Because he doesn't do it through the wielding of violence. And Lord knows the church has tried that route. The church still tries that route. And it is anti-Christ. It is an abomination to the kingdom to think that we can advance this kingdom of the one seated on the throne through wrangling, through violence, through oppression, through the taking of power, and through the wielding of it. 
not just in wounding body, but in wounding story and souls. And the story of all souls is a story of a community of exiles. It's our story. It's our family story. Being deeply wounded by those in the name of Jesus and finding ourselves here. And for many of you, it is your last stop on the way out of church. And I will say it this morning, I don't blame you. Because too often moments of deep pain have been, melt, have been met with platitudes with Bible verses wielded as a way to get you to be quiet about the pain you're feeling because I can't handle my own. Well, don't you trust that God is on the throne, that all things will be made new? So put your church mask on. Don't bring that pain here. No wonder so many of our sisters and brothers who in a world that is a colony of death come into what is supposed to be a colony of life. And when they experience it, as other than what are resurrected in the body of a marginalized people group, savior and friend intended for this community to be, no wonder they walk away. No wonder so many of us have wrestled with walking away have walked away and come back and are thinking about walking away again. We haven't told the story. Before every one of our scripture readings, we always frame it within the context of story because stories are important. There's, I love Anthony Bourdain. There's a scene in one of Anthony Bourdain's conversations. I think, if, if I'm wrong, correct me, someone, I think it's when he's with, uh, he's in Vietnam and he's having uh, a meal with uh, one of the former presidents and they're having a conversation about why meals are important. And Bourdain, who I miss dearly, was a haunted soul, but talk about a steward of beautiful words. He says, one of the reasons why I think meals are so important is because they actually tell us the story of the people. Everything down to our food, our, our liturgy is a story of God gathering us and speaking and feeding. All of this is embedded in stories, but that matters only in as much as we tell the story rightly. That's one of the, 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 the great failures of the people of God has been to tell the story rightly. We've been so afraid of telling our own history, of telling our own story, our complicity in the very systems that are causing this. Our fear of doing that has led us to platitudes, to church mask. We run because we feel safe. The king on the throne of Revelation 21 did not get there through conquest, but by being conquered. He didn't do it by wielding violence, but by having violence done against him. And what does he tell Peter in the garden? Right, Peter takes out his sword. He's like, it's go time. Because their expectation is, we're going to usher in the kingdom of God through violence. Slices off the ear of the guard, which Jesus returns and heals. But he looks to Peter and goes, you think I couldn't do it this way? Legions of angels? 
And I couldn't do it this way through violence? He goes, no, it's a different way, Peter. It's a different way. And it's something that Jesus' friends didn't understand at first. But it's something that they would grow to understand. You want to know how I know? In John 13, which was our gospel reading, it's part of the upper room discourse. It's the conversation that happened around this table that first night. Every single person around that table, their blood would be spilt for that kingdom. And they wouldn't fight it. Every single one of them, except for John, but he gets boiled alive. He survives it. (laughs) Every single one of them. Because it's easy, even in Jesus' words this morning, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, because you have loved one another. Oh, warm. Mm. Just love one another. Jesus' life, that love had legs. That love cost everything. Many of you know what it is to love like that. Many of you know what it is to be loved like that. A love that isn't full of platitudes. A love that cost. A love that is cruciform. But there's also some in this room who don't know what it is to be loved like that. Who are in need of healing. Because violence has been done against them. King seated on his throne. <laughs> Even in our Acts reading this morning, Acts 11, there's this cr- critical moment, and it's one of many turning points in the book of Acts. As Jesus' friends that are now apostles and leaders within the church are learning what it means that the The kingdom of God is not just available to them, but it's available to everyone. It's scandalous. That it turns out that the aim of God in all of human history is to create a community that is diverse and inclusive, where God is at the center. that is truly welcoming, that is hospitable, not in a way of saying, you gotta be perfect to belong, but that part of the hospitality is one of repair. I think that's part of hospitality, it's owning where we have fallen short and where we have, where we have failed and then doing the work of repairing that. Peter thinks the kingdom is about exclusion. And God invites him into a different way of seeing. Even in Jesus' new commandment, which comes at the beginning, 
of this upper room discourse. Jesus is sitting at the table with who we would all perceive as his enemy. Someone's out to get you. And Jesus sits with them at the table. And that little moment, right, because it's like a little bit of a throwaway phrase in this reading. When he had gone out. There are people that Jesus would welcome to a table that we would not. And that is what is so demonic and evil about what happened this weekend. It is so anti the kingdom that has come. Jesus gives at the beginning of the upper room discourse this new commandment to love one another as Christ has loved them. Think about all that Jesus in that moment brings with him. How do we love? Like Jesus has loved. A simple way of saying that is it's a cruciform love. But it's also a love that is curious. It is a love that has legs. Our love, we're invited to have a responsive love. A love that answers what? God's love. Even as Jesus continues through the upper room discourse, he gives this new commandment and doesn't stop there. Because I think in his bones, he knows that this love is going to cost. And this love can't stay as platitude things we confess and then move on. Having never actually examined our lives to see if we're becoming the kind of people that love like our teacher loves. And little by little, every single moment of every single day, become a little bit more like him. Because even as you look at the rest of the upper room discourse, I think Jesus gives us a framework for what it is to love. Following this statement, he moves on to foretell Peter's denial. Because I think he knows that this love is going to cost us. It's going to cost us friendships and relationships. We're going to have fallouts with family and with friends when we speak against things like white nationalism when we push back against platitudes like all lives matter, and they do. But when we push back against that because we don't have a way of listening to the pain, the real pain of those on the margins who violence is done against in the name of supremacy, he knows that's going to cost us. He goes on to then go, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because how is it that we love? How is it that we seek justice, to be a people of justice? 
to give space for people who are in pain to find healing. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of strategies for how to do this, but I, I'll tell you right now, I don't trust any strategy for anything, for life, for healing, for justice that doesn't need Jesus, that doesn't need the king who is on the throne to which all of this is headed. But I also don't trust any way that goes, well, he's on the throne though, right? So we don't need to do anything. That's Martin Luther King's criticism of the clergy in his letters from a Birmingham jail. You preach the kingdom, yet you're not doing anything. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He goes on to promise the Holy Spirit. This is a spirit-filled work. We don't receive the Holy Spirit just for healing and insight. We receive the Holy Spirit to join with God in the work of justice, in the work of coming alongside to set the world to rights. Because God in his eternal wisdom says, I'm not gonna do it on my own. Promises the Holy Spirit and then moves on to the famous passage many of us know, I am the true vine and you are the branches. A reminder that as we remain rooted in the vine, it will naturally begin to push us to become the kind of people who look toward people on the margins, move toward them, and with God begin to make space for healing, for justice. But then he did, again, he doesn't end there, and I love the, the upper room discourse because it is so true to our lived experiences because then he moves from that to go, and guess what? The world's going to hate you. He says this in, in chapter 15, the second half of chapter 15 isn't given to, and here's how to get through the world's hate, and here's how to deal with it. Take a few deep breaths, center yourself. He goes, the world's gonna hate you, and they hated me first. But you have to keep about pushing through and doing this work. And then moves back again to the work of the Spirit, promising them that sorrow will turn into joy in this work of extending to the world the love we have received. And how does Jesus end? He ends by praying for them. He prays for his friends then, he prays for his friends now, because I think Jesus knows. I think Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived. And as part of that, I think what Jesus knows is to actually love one another as we have been loved. <laughs> we need something from outside of ourselves to animate, to help us reimagine. And Jesus goes, I'll do that. I'll pray for you. And the New Testament tells us is even now praying, interceding on our behalf. Oh, if we could just hear Jesus. <laughs> could you imagine hearing him right now? Because I think, I think there'd be sorrow over what has happened, what continues to happen. Sorrow that there feels like there's no end in sight. But 
I think, too, in the midst of that sorrow, he'd be praying for us. God, would you, Father, give them unity and peace and endurance and patience. Open their eyes. Let them know they are not alone. Let them be healed that they might go and extend our healing, restored that they might go and extend our restoration. Let them in their bones know that they are loved, that they may go and be and extend that love to the world we have always loved. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.